Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. First of all, that because of Jesus Christ, those of us who are afar off have been made near, close. And we can have a close, personal, intimate relationship with you. We don't have to go through a priesthood like they did in the Old Testament. You don't relate with us based on the same covenant. It is not a law that is inscribed on stone. It is a new covenant. And you have written your law upon the tablets of our hearts. For we remember, as the scripture says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So as we read this tonight, we recognize there are lessons that are written for us, but we stand in such a better place with a better covenant based upon better promises because there is a better priesthood and a better mediator, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to learn all of the Bible, not just certain portions, not just the easy parts, because we know that you have blessings for us in all of the parts. This is part of your curriculum. Help us to learn, not just to learn, but learn that we might do. In Jesus' name, amen. 150-mile trip that should have taken 11 days but it took 40 years. That would bum me out. I would hate it. I would be frustrated to see the cowardice of the 10 representatives who said, they're going to kill us. We're so small and they're so big, we'll never make it. To know that that act of unbelief would cause me to wander around year after year out in the dirt. Yet, Moses and uh, Joshua and Caleb, along with Moses, were the ones that were left after an entire generation died out in the desert and their corpses were strewn out there. And then this new generation was brought into the land, but there were a few of the faithful ones that were left. Oh, how frustrating it must have been. The book of Numbers, the first ten chapters, which we are still in, we haven't finished yet, is a, is a time of preparation. They're camped around Mount Sinai. It, it is an organizational phase before God just says, Hey, man, go for it. Just go for it. Go out there. Just start walking as you feel led. They had to be organized. This is a big group of people. The tribes had to be numbered. The people had to be put in ranks. There had to be an order to how they would set up the tabernacle, an order to the breaking down and setting up of it, and an order to the march. And then after that organizational phase came disorganization. And that's from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. That is where a period of disbelief settles in. And chapter 11 really gets a narrative where it becomes, I would say, more exciting. There are a couple chapters in what we're reading tonight that, to be honest with you, are boring. I'm being honest with you. I re re read them and it's like, all right, and I'll explain that in a little bit. 
And then the last phase from uh, the last part of the book, chapter 26 onward, is reorganization. They number the people again, those who are left. There's a diminishing of the ranks, and they go from Kadesh into the plains of Moab. But in chapter 6, it's an interesting chapter of service and dedication. It is a vow called a Nazarite vow. It is not a vow people had to do. It was completely voluntary. If you wanted to express thankfulness to God and you wanted to take a vow, you didn't have to. God didn't say, now, if you really love me, you'll take this vow. It was an option. Because there were those people who would say, oh, my life is dedicated to God, or for a period of time I want to express my thanksgiving to Him. They would take this vow. And it was a total dedication. It was a dedication of one's entire life. And God took the vow very seriously. Now, they didn't have to make it, but once you make it, God holds you accountable to keep the vow. So before you say, I surrender all, you better think of those words. You don't have to sing it, but if you sing it, you better mean it, because God will require it. There's a letter that Billy Graham Organization published some time back. It was a letter written by a communist to his fiancée after he broke up with her. The girl received the letter, was heartbroken for a while, sent it to Billy Graham, and he published it. He wrote, this young student, We communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way make, uh, made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We have been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing which I am in dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, and my dream at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship or a love affair or even a conversation without relating it to this force, which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I have already been in jail because of my ideals, and if necessary, 
I'm ready to go before the firing squad. And I read that and I thought, a Christian should have written that. That all of life, everything is evaluated by what is your relationship to God, Christ, the kingdom of God, a passion that would move a person. Well, now we come to this Nazarite vow, completely voluntary, but a total dedication of oneself to the service of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar, (laughs) that would not be a hard law to keep, (laughs) made from wine or vinegar made from similar drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat any fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of his vow, his, of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All of the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. Now in verse 2 it mentions the vow of a Nazarite, One translation of this text says, when a man or a woman undertakes a difficult vow or a hard vow to the Lord. And as you read on, it is a tough vow. It's not compulsory, but it is demanding. The term natsar in Hebrew, Nazarite, natsar means dedicated one or to dedicate. And again, it was for a period of time The Jewish Mishnah, or the oral commentary upon this, says that the standard time was 30 days, sometimes up to 100 days. Very rarely, but it's possible, one could be a Nazarite for life. Total dedication of oneself to God. Now, as far as those in the Bible who were notable Nazarites, It seems that Samuel was. He was dedicated to God for the purpose of serving the Lord even before he was born. Hannah prayed, Oh Lord, give me a son and I'll dedicate him to you. And as soon as the son came to be born, she dedicated him to God. Samson is perhaps the most famous Nazarite. Dedicated to God. Didn't shave his head didn't drink wine. Now, keep in mind that Samson, I know we picture Samson sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, the great incredible Hulk. It could be that he was just a mealy guy. His strength was not in the fact that he didn't cut his hair. His strength was in the fact that he was dedicated to God. And as he gives out his secret that he has been dedicated to God, that's why he has grown his hair. 
as his heart turns from his dedication to God, that's where he loses his strength. It's not that long hair makes you strong and short hair makes you weak. It's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is you are strong as you are dedicated to God. Now, God gave him supernatural strength so that as he was dedicated to God, that strength remained upon him. But he was a famous Nazarite. Then there's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was sort of a wild guy living out in the desert who ate bugs and wore eccentric clothes and didn't cut his hair. Neither did he drink wine, but he was dedicated to God from his birth. Paul the Apostle, it seems, took a Nazarite vow. In Acts chapter 21, he comes to Jerusalem, and the Christians there are upset because there's talk that Paul the Apostle, around Jerusalem, there's talk that he is against the law and against the temple, and uh, it is advised that to prove people wrong, he said, they said, now look, there's four guys here in Jerusalem who've taken a vow. Why don't you go and pay their expenses? Which was quite an expense. It was an offering uh, that was to take place at the end of the vow. Where they would shave their head, burn the hair in a fire, and the expenses would be paid to the uh, temple for buying of the lamb, uh, for a sin offering, the ram for a peace offering, fine flour mixed with oil for a meal offering, and uh, all of the things that this chapter specifies. So those are notable people who took the vow. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. Now, first of all, they couldn't have any wine, and wine symbolized earthly joy. Now, God doesn't have anything against wine per se, but priests were not allowed to drink wine. Nazarites were not allowed to drink wine. The issue is that God did not want them filled with any other spirit other than his. God wanted to control their life. There was to be no defilement. And in the scripture, it says in Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink causes brawling, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. It's not the substance as much as the abuse of it that the Bible speaks against, the being drunk with it or controlled by it, where you loosen up because of it. God wants to control your life. Be not drunk with wine, but what? filled with the Spirit. The idea is one of control. God wants to control your life. It is sad, but believe it or not, a little bit later on in Israel's history, it's recorded in the book of Amos, God says, I am against you, O Israel, because number one, you're telling the prophets not to prophesy, and number two, you make the Nazarites drink wine. They were forcing these guys who made a vow to God, and part of the vow is, we don't drink wine. God controls us. The people of Israel were forcing their brethren to drink wine. Now, I think that's a pattern of the world. The world feels rebuked by somebody who lives at a high standard. And rather than saying, I want to rise, raise my life up to that standard, they would rather say, let me drag you down to my low standard. Because your high standard of living rebukes their low life. And it's sad, but even some Christians would love you to compromise to be like them so that they don't look so bad. 
And God rebuked his people for that. They made a vow. It was a serious vow. They were to keep the vow to God. And then we read on. It says that they are not to cut their hair. There's a similar word. Nazar means to dedicate. That's where we get the term Nazarite. There's another Hebrew term closely related, Nazir, which means the unpruned vine. Hence the uncut hair. Hair was considered by some of the ancients to be the seat of life, the seat of life. Hair is growing out, you know, it indicates that there's growth in your life. And the idea is that you, you don't cut it, you don't trim it, you just let it hang out al natural. And then you don't touch a corpse so that you don't defile yourself with a dead body, even if it was a relative. Now, that would be a difficult thing to, to do. You, know, you say, I'm going to make a vow to God. And for X number of months or days, I'm going to dedicate myself to God. Now, I realize what this is going to cost. I realize that if my dad dies or my mother dies or my child or my brother, I can't touch the corpse. I can't be around the corpse. It's going to cause the family, perhaps, to get a little bit angry at me. How can you do this? Your own flesh and blood has died, and, and you weren't there at the funeral. You weren't carrying the casket. Oh, but I made a vow to God. Oh, you and your religion. It was a heavy cost. Now, there's a parallel, in a sense, in the New Testament. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I don't want to push the parallel too much, but I think that it's possible as a Christian to have another love besides Jesus Christ. I've seen people love and serve God, then they have kids, and then it's as if they put their kids up and worship their children over God or their spouse over God. That relationship with the person becomes more important than their relationship to God. Keith Green, who's now in heaven, had a song some years back about his family. He said, I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. The second verse, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. Third verse, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a praising, thankful voice and to be like him who bore the scorn and wore the crown of thorns. In other words, God is my all. I, my life will be consumed by him. And love of anyone else won't take precedence over my love and relationship to him. It was a heavy cost, and the Nazarite must pay it. So all the days of his separation, he shall be holy unto the Lord. If anyone dies suddenly beside him, and he defiled his consecrated head. In other words, okay, he's going to make this vow, but somebody kicks the bucket next to him. Now he's defiled. It's an incident that he hadn't planned. Then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it, and on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body, and he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering, but the former days 
shall be lost because of his separation was defiled. So they don't have to make the vow, but once they do, God will take the vow very seriously. And if a guy's defiled, well, he has to make amends for it by this act of sacrifice. Now, this is dedication. This is true dedication. It's a heavy cost. No wine, no raisins, no grape juice. I'm going to let my hair just hang out. And in those days, that's tough because it's, it's a lot easier to maintain when you'd shave your head. Because they didn't have the hygiene capabilities, the showers, the shampoos, the cream rinses, the spritz that we do today. And so it, it's, it was tough. It was inconvenient. But there is a difference between involvement and dedication. Well, I'm involved, but are you dedicated? So, well, what's the difference? Well, look at a, at a plate of ham and eggs, and you'll see the difference between involvement and dedication. You look at eggs, and you think of a chicken. You look at ham, well, that's the pig. In that process, the chicken was involved, the pig was dedicated. <laughs> he gave his life. The chicken was inconvenienced temporarily. It consumed the pig. It consumed the Nazarite as long as that vow was made to be totally dedicated to God. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in his first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its drink offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from the consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. When the vow was completed... They would go to the door of the tabernacle. Everybody could see what was happening. It was a public demonstration of commitment. It was done publicly. Whenever Jesus called someone, he called them publicly to follow him. He didn't ask for secret agent Christians. He didn't ask for Inspector Clouseau believers private eyes for God. It was to be done very openly, out in the open. He called people publicly. He said to Matthew at the receipt of customs, come and follow me, Matthew. Not, Matthew, after work I want to talk to you. And then in the evening, hey Matt, you don't have to tell anybody because I know it's just lifestyle evangelism. 
follow me at night. He called them out. He called the disciples who were fishermen out from their public occupation to follow him publicly. And here the Nazarite was to follow or to, to demonstrate this at the door of the tabernacle in public. It was not a private act of devotion. I have always been amazed as I go to India at the commitment that is shown publicly from village to village when the guys and the gals come to Jesus Christ. Many of them come from Hindu backgrounds. And it has become their custom in a village when a person gives his life to Christ, uh, excuse me, a Hindu background, most of them, since most of the villagers know them, they've seen them at the temple, they've seen them in many of the Hindu rituals, they've made it a habit in most villages to put on a white robe, symbolic of purity, to march through Main Street of the town with tambourines singing loudly. And with all of the Christians around singing praises to God so that everybody has the attention given to the parade. And they look out and they see all these people out there. Hey, I know that guy. I know her. What's she doing? They've made a break and they're publicizing it. Then they go down to the river still singing and crowds of unbelievers come around. And it's a public demonstration of the inward change. I think that's beautiful. And it's, again, a demonstration that is public here uh, for these Nazarites. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation, verse 21. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to that vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. This speaks to us before we move on to the next portion and then the next chapter. The Nazarite has a lesson for us. He speaks of service, voluntary service, not compulsory. God will never force you to serve him. And I wonder if some tonight think of serving God as a drag. Oh, I, I like it right where I'm at. I don't want to give my life fully to him because of what he might require. Listen, serving God fully should be the occupation of every believer, and it's nothing but sheer joy and adventure to see what God will bring into your life next. What would God have, God have for you this week? Oh, but my job is boring. Not if you do it to him and you see your job as a mission field. See that person who walks in the office as a potential member of the kingdom of God. It could transform your job. Dedication unto God. Service unto the Lord. Full-time service. That's what this lesson speaks to us about. The Nazarite vow is the highest possible vow of dedication that a Jewish male, or female for that matter, though we don't really read of any, uh, we see at the beginning it says whether it's a man or a woman who consecrates to God. The idea is a refreshing idea. The idea is born out of a motivation which asks, what is the utmost that I can do for God? That's refreshing thinking. Rather than, what can I get away with and still make it to heaven? Do you ever think like a Nazarite? What can I do for the utmost of God's glory in his kingdom? It's a beautiful thought. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I read a story 
of an American pastor named Tim Dearborn who was in Bangkok, Thailand, and he got in a taxi cab, and there were four others in the cab, crowded as usual, and there he's going to the airport, and in the cab was a young Marxist revolutionary. And the Marxist was asking questions of everybody in the car, and he got over to Tim, and he said, what do you do? Who are you? What are you about? He said, I'm a Christian, I'm a missionary, I'm a pastor. And the Marxist said, you know, your cause is hopeless. Your agenda will never work. He said, what do you mean it's hopeless? It'll never work. And he said, exactly. I'm, I'm a Marxist revolutionary. I'm on my way to India. I'm about to speak to a group of fishermen in India to have them overthrow their local government. I'm willing to die for it. Yet you Americans, you American Christians, are consumed with what your God should do for you. And he said, that self-gratification and laying down one's life are mutually exclusive. You can't live with that kind of a motivation and expect your cause to flourish. But as for me, I'm ready to lay my life down for my agenda. Struck an arrow to his heart. And so he started thinking from now on, what can I do to make the utmost of every moment, of every day, to the glory of God? That's the lesson of the Nazarite. It is voluntary. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 22, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Isn't that awesome? So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Three lines of that blessing have the divine name Lord, which I think is sort of a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit indicating Trinity. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And it uh, gives force to verse 27. They shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Each line has two elements of blessing, and each line gets longer as it goes. Again, it's set out in poetic form. There are 12 words in the original Hebrew, and the Hebrew scholars look at this as a blessing for the 12 tribes of Israel. But I love verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. The lifting up of, of, of the face was a sign of favor, a favor. When you lift up your eyes and you acknowledge a person, it's, I'm granting my favor unto you. And God says, when you stand before my people and you give them a blessing, bless them like this. And it must have been awesome to hear those words. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now it came to pass, verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, When Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it, sanctified it, and all its furnishings, and the altar and all its utensils, so he anointed it, and he sanctified them. This chapter is the longest chapter in the five books of Moses. It's the second longest chapter in the Bible. What's the longest? Psalm 119. This is the second longest chapter in the Bible, the longest in the Pentateuch. 
It is very, very repetitive. It is, to me, boring. Now, I have the guts enough to be honest with you. But what is boring and incidental with me has to be exciting to God. It's included in the Holy Writ. The people that are mentioned, I don't care anything about. They're mentioned here as people who give this and give that, and they're never mentioned again. But God cares about them. They're important to Him. The Bible says the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I don't care about the hairs of your head. I don't care how many hairs you have. But God does. It's a beautiful chapter in that regard. But it is very, very repetitive. Chapter 7 is a chapter of worship or offerings given by the leaders of all the tribes. And we're just going to touch on it and move on. The leaders of all the tribes, a representative from each tribe, giving an offering, giving a sacrifice to God. Worship of God. To me, it's beautiful that worship follows blessing. God blesses them through Moses. When you speak to the children, speak to them this way. The Lord bless you. And then God says, I will bless them as my name is upon them. After the blessing comes worship. And I think that's always the order. Worship is simply a response to God. It is a choice we make. It is our turn. We do not worship so that we can get something from God. We are responding not to what God can give us, but to who God is. I am disturbed when I hear people say, I didn't get much out of worship. Well, I don't care. Because worship isn't for you. It's for God. When the band cranks up their whatever they crank up up here, their instruments, their amps, their drums, and they worship. It's not for you except to lead you before the throne room. God is the audience. It's an audience of one. It's not like you go, well, I liked it on a scale of one to ten. I give it a six, easy to dance to, good rhythm. It is for God. And when they get up here and they pray and they start singing, it's your turn. It's your cue. You're responding to the blessings of God. If you worship God so that you can get something out of it, then you have made God your servant, not your Lord. It's a cheap means of self-gratification. Worship is something that comes from our hearts in response to who God is, his character. Well, I don't feel like worshiping, but God is still worthy. That's where the term worship comes from, worship. We worship what is worthy. He's still worthy. You're still going to heaven if you're a believer. God hasn't let you out of his sight, irrespective of how you feel. It's for him. That's the whole purpose. And so here's the worship system. We'll get into it just a little bit. Verse 3, they brought their offerings before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen. A cart for every two of the leaders and for each one an ox. So they presented them before the tabernacle. The Lord spoke to Moses, accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting, 
and you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. Four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. You say, well, that's not fair. The uh, sons of Merari got more. Yeah, but they had to carry, remember, the hardware. Not just the tents and the coverings. They had to carry the poles and the boards and all of the heavy equipment. They needed some more carts. You say, but what about the Kohathites? Where are their carts? They don't get any carts. They're supposed to carry the ark and the implements on their shoulders with the staves. They have to carry them by foot without any kind of a wheel system. But to the sons of Koath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. Now, there was a time when David thought that times have changed. It's a modern era. Let's automate things. Let's get a cart and move the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the house of Abinadab, and let's move it up to Jerusalem in this cart. And so they moved it along, and they got to a threshing floor. It was a little bit unstable, and Uzzah put out his hand to stabilize this thing, and he touched the ark in a way that God didn't prescribe, and God struck him dead. David grieved because of this. God, how could you? Well, David, if you would have read the Bible, you would have remembered that the Kohathites were to carry it on their shoulders, covered, not on a cart. God took it very seriously. You worship God in his way, a prescribed way. He learned his lesson and he never repeated it again. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. Here's the agenda. Here's the chapter. Twelve guys representing twelve tribes. Each guy had a day, twelve days was a dedication service. They would bring their offerings before God. Every single day, it was exactly the same. The only thing that changed was the guys who represented the tribes. So we're going to read down to verse 17 and then go all the way to the end because it reads exactly the same. Verse 12, And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, or Nashon, or Nashon. I don't know how you pronounce it. Depends on what part of the country you're from. The son of Aminadab from the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels. Which, uh, 130 shekels and one bowl of silver, that would be... Uh, about $260, if it was weighed in at $5 an ounce, uh, that would be the 130 shekels. And then one silver bowl of 70 shekels, which would be 140 bucks, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, that would be worth about $1,800. So each offering is worth what? 20, is that about 2200 bucks? that they had to bring, plus the flour, the recipe for the offering. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering. One kid of the goats is a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, 
five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amminadab. Who is Nashon? Just a representative. He was selected to give the offering, head of the house. And he gave, his offering is noted. And then all of the tribes are listed and their offerings, identical verbiage, just different people. Now, as boring as this chapter is because of its repetition, and believe me, just read it through. Try to read it out loud. Go home and just read it out loud and, and you'll see. It's just repetitive. It is included it might seem insignificant. I don't care about nation or what he gave, but God does. Do you remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was hanging around the temple. And he was just sitting around where people give gifts, watching what they gave, watching how they gave, watching the amount that they gave. And somebody might think, man, that's awfully nosy. What business does he have what they gave? He has all the business in the world. He's God. And God sees everything you do. And God sees how you do it. And he noticed the rich putting in their money. And he noticed a widow coming by, put in two pieces of copper. What she gave, according to what the rabbi said, she couldn't give. They said that small of amount isn't even worthy of an offer. But she gave it. Jesus said, oh, look, she's given more than the rest. Because to Jesus, it's not the portion that you give. It's the proportion that you give. She gave her livelihood. She had nothing. And she gave what she had, everything she had. Jesus took note of it. And so Jesus takes note of what we give. And he takes note of how we give it. Now, how are we to give? Well, it says in 2 Corinthians, I think it's the ninth chapter, we are to give in proportion to our blessing. As God has blessed us financially, we give according to our proportion. Not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Then Jesus said in the Gospels, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give. Don't make a big deal out of it. I think that pretty much rules out public pledging. Well, brother so-and-so has pledged this amount. No, you don't announce it. It's private. You don't make it hype. I hate hype. I hate it. I, my skin crawls when I read it or see it. Give us your seed faith gift so that God will bless you even more as you give to us. Or if you don't support this ministry, it's going to die. I just hate that kind of pressure. And I know God does. Because he, in the Bible, talks so much about that giving simply from the heart. Well, they gave. They gave exactly the same, but God takes note of it. And by the way, as we take you to the end of the chapter, the way this giving schedule comes out, it was exactly like the arrangement of the camps around the tabernacle and the order of their march. In other words, the people on the east side of the tabernacle, the three tribes would arise first when they would march, and thus they gave the same way. 
and after that people on the south, and then the three tribes on the west, and then the three tribes on the north. So exactly as they would march, they also gave. Okay, that's the chapter. Let's take it toward the end. Verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver platters, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels. Each bowl 70 shekels. And the silver vessels weighed 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighed ten shekels apiece according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were twelve young bulls and the rams twelve, male lambs in their first year twelve with their grain offerings and kids of the goats as a sin offering twelve. And all of the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were twenty-four bulls, the rams sixty, the male goats sixty, the lambs in their first year sixty. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Verse 89, and when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. Now what if he never went in to speak to God? What if he never were to draw near to God? Well, he never would have heard God's voice probably. But in coming in to speak to God, he heard God speak to him. The Bible says if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Again, it speaks of worship. I didn't get anything out of worship. It's because you didn't put anything into it. If you come with an empty heart and you do nothing but expect to receive, you'll walk away with nothing. But if you put your heart into it and worship publicly is simply an extension of what your life is all the time, it'll be very rewarding and rich. It doesn't matter if the song is in a B-flat or a C or it's fast or slow or it has this instrument or that instrument. That's incidental. We're so hung up on the art of worship. God's concerned about the heart of worship. The woman at the well. Well, our fathers worship in this mountain and you guys worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said, that's incidental, woman. God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And you know what? You can do that anywhere under any circumstance. So if you're not getting anything out of worship, it's nobody's fault but yours. Because God is present when his people gather in his name. God spoke to Moses. Wow, that's awesome. Um... Exodus 33 says, And God spoke to Moses face to face as a man would speak to his friend. I love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the scripture. Literally in Hebrew, God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. The rabbi said that when Moses got into that place, that the voice of God stuck in his mind and it was clear. It was in his mind, but it was clear as an image would be clear in a mirror. That's how the rabbis interpret it. The idea behind that phrase of God speaking to him as a man would speak to his friend is it was, it was in plain conversation, like friends talk. When you sit down with a friend, you don't put on airs. You, you share your heart, the deepest secrets. 
you share with that friend, and the friend shares the secrets back, and it's warm, and it's winsome, and it's lovely. And I love that kind of talk. That's how I like to talk to God. I don't like to yell at God. God isn't impressed. How you talk to God is your business, but when I hear somebody pray publicly, and then I'm involved in it, it's my business because I'm hearing it. When they yell at God, it makes me wonder what kind of relationship they have with God. Oh, God! It's not how I share with my friends. I don't sit my friend and go, Oh, Frank. I just, hey, buddy, what's happening, man? I share who I am and how I am, and it's very natural. That's how I like to talk to God. I go on walks sometimes, or I'll ride my bicycle, or I'll be up at night in my study, and I'll just sit down, and I'll just start rapping with God. God sees who I am anyway. I'm not hiding it. I'm not impressing him. When I raised my voice, God didn't go, ooh. You got my ear now. It's not like he's deaf and you have to get his attention. If you go, God, or you go, God, it's all the same. Speaking as a man would speak to his friend, God spoke back to him. Above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. And we have 10 minutes, enough for another chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face forward, or toward the front of the lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now this workmanship of the lampstand was of hammered gold, and its shaft to its flowers was hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord has shown Moses he made the lamps. Hold that thought right there. I've been uh, digging with Harrison Ford, and uh, <laughs> he found the ark, and I found the lampstand. We've made what is believed to be, as best as possible, a replica of what stood in the tabernacle or later on in the temple. Now, this is of solid wood. <laughs> but imagine how much it would weigh and what it would cost were it of solid gold. As you would go through the tabernacle and you'd walk through the first gate and you'd see this huge altar where animals were killed and bled to atone for sin... The next thing you'd find is a little laver for cleansing. So you had to be cleansed before you approach. And you got to a place called the holy place, which was a smaller tent, 15 feet wide by uh, 45 feet deep. You'd walk into the first room, the antechamber, and you would see this thing on your left. And it is, it, picture me as the veil. You're walking in. This thing would be on your left like this. And right over here, on this side would be a little table with 12 loaves of bread, showbread. And then right around here, a little bit behind me, would be this veil that separated this room from 
the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And right before that veil was a small golden altar. And we didn't bring out all the pieces because we're speaking here about the lampstand. Now the idea is that in the tabernacle there was one source of light. And it was the lampstand. The lampstand was of a central core with six branches that came from it. A seven-branched menorah, the Hebrew word for lights. Uh, I think it's descriptive of Jesus Christ. As there was one source of light, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. As there was one door of entrance to the tabernacle, Jesus said, I am the door. Now these lamps on top had oil in them. Modern menorahs have the candles, but they didn't have. In those days there were lamps, and the idea probably was that these lamps, this is broken, I can do this. Would they, it would be tilted forward to give the reflection and the light forward or to go to the other side of the holy place. That was the idea, and they would light the lamp, and uh, it's mentioned here with its craftsmen of hammered gold from its shafts to its flowers. It was of hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord showed Moses, so he made the lampstand. All right. We could talk more about the tabernacle, but let's just move on. The Lord spoke to Moses saying... Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purification on them. Let them shave their body. Let them wash their clothes and make themselves clean. Then let them take a young bull with its grain offering, a fine flour, mixed with oil. You shall take another young bull as a sin offering, and you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall gather together the whole assembly of the children of Israel. You shall bring the Levites before the Lord. And the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as though a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. The Levites didn't have to go in the army. They were free of the draft. Everybody had to fight, but the whole tribe of Levi was dedicated to God. They didn't have to fight. They were to serve, however. Before they had to serve, they had to be cleansed. I like this because it shows that no matter who you are, you still have to be cleansed. You know, I think that if they didn't have to go through this ritual, perhaps some of the people would look at them as sort of having special status. Ooh, a Levite. Wow. He's holy. No, he's not. He's filthy. He needs to be cleansed. He's a sinner like the rest. He needs to go through the ceremony, his own ceremony to be clean, before he can engage in any work to offer sacrifices for the children of Israel. It put them down at the level they ought to be at. We're all at the same level, you know that? The only reason I'm on a platform is for visibility, that's all. But I do love communion when I'm down on the floor because even visually... The idea is we're at the same level before the cross. I'm not closer to God than you are. My prayers aren't heard any more than anybody else's prayer who's a child of God and walking with God is. And I love this. You clean these guys up before they serve, even though they are Levites. And they're to have water sprinkled on them. And they uh, shave themselves. And uh, they make this sacrifice. Now, my belief is that God's original intention was not to have a priesthood. 
I believe that God's original intention was that the entire nation of Israel be representatives. Just as before the law was given, heads of families or patriarchs served as priests in their own home. That the entire nation was to be a priesthood. You say, "Eh, I don't know. Where do you get that? Exodus 19. God said the whole nation was to be a nation of priests unto him. But that was before the golden calf incident. And when that idolatry happened, God isolated the tribe of Levi to rise from the 12 tribes and represent them. But that was because of their idolatry. It was not God's original intention. So they go, first of all, through this sprinkling, the washing. Do you remember the night of the Last Supper? Jesus is there, puts a towel around himself, starts washing the disciples' feet. He comes to Peter, and what does Peter do? He acts super spiritual, right? He's, oh, God, oh, Jesus, oh, no, you don't have to wash me. I'm not worthy that you wash me. And so Jesus said, if I don't wash you, Pete, you will have no part with me. And then he went, the, he, you know, he went from one extreme to the other. He said, oh, Lord, just wash all of me. Give me a bath. <laughs> no, Peter, all I need to do is wash your feet. You've already been cleansed, and you've already been cleansed. You've been saved, but you walk in this world, and you get dirty feet. The influence of the world rubs off, and you need that periodic cleansing as you confess your sins. All children of God do. Next would come the shaving after the sprinkling, and then would come the sacrifice. When somebody serves God... What's the first prerequisite? You've got to be saved. You think, well, gosh, you know, that's elementary. Well, I mean, that's so obvious you don't even need to mention it. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Get outside the evangelical church. And there are liberal churches around the world with liberal pastors who are not saved. They spend their times in the pulpit saying the Bible isn't true. They have a whole lifestyle that... Their whole gearing is to tell people that God doesn't exist or if God does exist, they're deists and God is detached. And The clergymen need to be saved in our country. Pray for revival. Pray that pastors get saved. I've given an altar call before where a man came up at the altar call and afterwards he said, I've been an elder of this church on the other side of town for many, many years. I'm not pointing to one side or the other. Which side is he pointing to? Which, Just whatever. <laughs> and he said, I've never made a commitment to Christ personally. Can you imagine preaching salvation without being saved? Well, it happens. So you cleanse these guys first. And then comes the sacrifice. And then they move on. Their uh, hands are laid on them. And the idea, of course, is... I identify with these Levites. I am transferring. They have taken my place. Remember the firstborn, the tenth plague. God said, because I spared the firstborn, I require your firstborn. And instead of your firstborn, just give me the tribe of Levi, and they'll serve. So you lay hands on them. You say, I identify with your work. You're substituting for me. Go serve God. I'm behind you. I'll support you. And these Levites, again, were totally dedicated to the work of God. They're apart from secular work, apart from the army, serving God full time. 
A concert violinist who played at Carnegie Hall was asked the secret of her success. She said, the secret of my success as a professional musician is called planned neglect. He said, what do you mean? He said, I have planned to neglect everything that didn't take me to my number one goal. In other words, I ate, I drank, I breathed, I studied, I slept, violin. And I neglected everything else. That's why I'm good at what I do. Imagine if we had that kind of dedication to the things of God, planned neglect, totally in service for God. Wow. A nation of priests. By the way, you are a nation of priests, the New Testament says. So they laid the hands on them. And uh, then the Levites, verse 12, will lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls and shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And so they did this. Now in verse 20, Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites so the children of Israel did to them. Now notice this, please. Everything so far that God said, they did it like that, like the Nike commercial, just do it. They did it. It was like instantaneous obedience. Now, I bring that up because I'm saying enjoy it while it lasts. Because we're going to come to chapter 11, when after chapter 10, this cloud starts moving and they start going out into the desert. They've prepared to march. And as they go, they start complaining. And then they start disobeying. And it goes from bad to worse. So right now, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. But it won't last. The Levites purified themselves, washed their clothes. Aaron presented them as though a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. After that, the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. You say, now wait a minute. Now there's a discrepancy because I remember, Skip, back in chapter 4, verse 3, the age was 30. Now it says 25. Is there a discrepancy? No. Probably most rabbis and most Jewish scholars believe that there was five years internship, on-the-job training. They followed, they watched, they helped, but it was age 30 where they really entered into the priesthood. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work, and they shall work no more. So you retire at 50. Pretty good deal. Now, after 50, you could still hang around and help the younger. But the, here's the idea. The prime of your life, the best years of your life, is to be given to God. That they may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. Well, we finished it. Three chapters. Next week we'll ch take chapter 9, 10, and maybe 11. I'm going to give you just one side note before we close. 20 years of age was the age that David dropped the priesthood to in the book of Chronicles. 
Now, I'm not going to say it was right. He just did it. The demands were more strenuous, having a temple rather than a tabernacle, and there were more duties, and there was a bigger crowd. But it was 20 years old. Now, in chapter 14, you don't have to look ahead, but when God judges the children of Israel for complaining, what is the cutoff age? 20. Everybody who complained, who was 20 years old and above, kicked the bucket. Which brings up the idea of the age of accountability. I hear people discuss that question. Well, what is the age of accountability? Is it 12? Well, in the book of Numbers, it was 20. 20 years old and above died. That is, if you were 19 and a half and you complained, you didn't get killed. But if you were 20 and you complained, you did. That was the cutoff. I'm often asked, what is the age of accountability? I've got to say, it depends. I don't think there is a set age. It depends on the child. Some children from a very early age have a keen spiritual sensitivity. It's amazing what they pick up on. It's amazing where they're at with God. It's beautiful. And others seem to have that age raised. It just really depends on the individual. I don't think you can make a cutoff judgment. But over in chapter 14, it was 20 years old and above. Did we finish the chapter? Yeah, great. Now, I, I'm sharing that with you, and I want to close to just a couple thoughts. I'm not going to ramble on too much more. I think sometimes parents try to force their children into spiritual molds. My child's old enough. My child understands. My child's different than all other children. I baptize children that parents have brought them there, and many of them, I know they've made a real commitment to Christ, but there are some, as that I'm baptizing them in the water, I think, they really have no business at this point being there. Now, I don't want to cut off any child who says, I want to be baptized. I think if a kid has a hunger for God, I want to really encourage that. But I think it's because parents are trying to push their kids into a spiritual level of maturity that really isn't there. And if it's not there, it's okay. Your child is covered. Your child isn't going to go to limbo. That place doesn't exist. Your child dies, your child will go to heaven. Give your child room. Teach your children. Let them learn by example. And if they want and they're encouraged in their own heart to read the word and to sing worship and to be baptized, great. But don't force them into that. Oh, but i got to do it before they reach the age of accountability. What is that age? I don't think you can give a certain age. It all depends on the kid. Just as there are some people who seem to never grow up to an age of accountability because of certain problems, uh, their minds don't develop, and they're forever a child because of some disease or some atrophy or whatever. And uh, again, I think that God, in His grace, has, treats that as a person as the same as He would a, an innocent child who hasn't reached that level of accountability. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that we've spent tonight in Your Word. You've given it to us. We have considered it. We have considered especially the lessons of devotion and dedication, of service to you, and the difference between involvement and dedication. Oh, God, we pray that we would be dedicated believers 
for the cause of Christ. No greater agenda on earth than the kingdom of heaven. But Lord, I pray that we would be motivated by a right spirit and a right heart, one out of love for you. I thank you, Father, for such a group as this, who is hungry for the word of God, to understand it, to consider it. Or even in the book of Numbers, there would be this many who would come out to read, to understand, to seek your face. Lord, you said that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And I pray and I trust that you will reward these who have come to seek your face, your will, your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Jesus' name.